Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the history of the Congo. Episode 10, The Lone Star of Texas. Last time we caught up, Henry Morton Stanley was returning once again to Africa, this time to the Atlantic coast in the west. He had started his journey with noble aims of trade and development, and was backed, at least through minority interests, by people whose philanthropic aims were beyond question. But a dark cloud billowed over the horizon. At port in Gibraltar, Stanley received secret orders from Leopold II. These had been hidden until the voyage was at sea, lest they would be seen by the French. These orders were very clear as to the true nature of the mission. Any ambiguity was removed. Underlying all of the generous rhetoric, this was absolutely a land grab. At this point, Stanley will have started to see that the noble aims fed to him to convince him of participation were entirely bogus. Notwithstanding these new instructions, seven months after leaving Europe, in August 1879, Stanley was once again navigating the Congo River. The circumstances were very different to the last time, when with his expedition he floated precariously along the river course. He now knew where he was, had supplies, and under the power of steam was able to travel unabated against the flow west to east. But some things remained the same. Many of the first expedition team were by his side. He had stopped at Zanzibar on the way to the west coast and had recruited 61 Wangwana, or Zanzibaris, with a further eight joining later. These included a lady, his closest companion, and Susie, who had been Livingston's devoted accomplice even after his death, as well as Wadi Rahani and Sudi. These facts challenge some of the interpretations of history. Modern authors such as Hothschild and Gondola represent Stanley as a colonial tyrant, free with the use of the whip and managing through brute force alone. Tim Geale, on the other hand, speculates that this was not entirely true. Why would these have volunteered to join Stanley to endure once more? Honestly, we will never know. But I suspect the truth is far more complicated than any modern narrative would portray. The theme of good and bad will be revisited many times as we reach the modern day. I don't want to issue my own thoughts, but the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the events within its borders are full of contrasts. As we get closer to the 21st century, and we will get there, we need to remain sensitive that some of this isn't ancient history. This is the world in which we live. On Stanley's arrival, and fresh after a far less arduous journey, Stanley now had time to see the Western Congo with fresh eyes. He saw the Kingdom of the Congo as we had left it at the end of episode 4. He saw, and I quote, two centuries of persecution. And he wanted to travel far away from the coast and its rum cellars. This provides some of the only written records of the peoples recovering from slavery and gives a necessary counterbalance to the embryonic signs of commerce that we mentioned in the last episode. Stanley's first project was to make the Congo River Basin accessible to the world. No mean feat, indeed. He would achieve this, removing the geographical isolation forever, by linking the coast to Malabi Pool, the gateway to the River Plateau. By the use of labour from other colonies and dynamite to smash through the land, he started the construction of a 52-mile road from Vivi on the coast to Isangala in the middle of the cataracts. 
He had campaigned tirelessly to Leopold II for this expensive capital project, but he knew that this was key to any sustained contact between the outside and the inner Congo. The route was unnavigable before, and the determination and drive to achieve this feat of engineering, notwithstanding the troubles it brought, earned Stanley the nickname Bulamatari, Kikongo for breaker of rocks. This famous term is thought to have been coined by Unsakala, a local known for his sense of humour, and Stanley, in his day, wore it as a badge of honour, even taking it to his tombstone. But later, and ominously, this off-the-cuff nickname was destined to be used as the representation of the oppressive state that was to come. The completion of the road, compelled by a sense of duty, became a personal quest. But within this, the diaries show sign of empathy and a genuine appreciation of the people living there. Stanley writes, Balobo is a great centre for the ivory and camwood powder trade, principally because its people are so enterprising. At this time, the Balobo had a population of 40,000, no small village. Of the Aribu, called the Venice of the Congo, just inland from Stanley Pool, he writes, These people were really acquainted with many lands and tribes of the Upper Congo, a distance of 6,000 miles. All the ups and downs of life, all the profits and losses of barter, all the diplomatic arts were as well known to them as the Roman alphabet is to us. Know you not the military man among you, the lawyer and the merchant, the banker, the artist or the poet? It is the same in Africa, more especially on the Congo, where the people are so devoted to trade. During the few days of our mutual intercourse, they gave us a high idea of their qualities, industry after their own style, not being the least conspicuous. It took Stanley and his party almost a year. But after the completion of three bridges, the filling of many gorges, and the construction of miles of road, the project was complete. The station at Isangala was linked by road, and Malabi Pool, now renamed Stanley Pool, was only 175 miles away. But it was at great human cost. Four of the Wangwana had died, as had four Europeans. But it was the Liberian labourers who had been brought from West Africa who suffered most, with 25 people, representing almost 25% of their number, dying during the task. No Belgians died. To the group's distate, these came to the Congo with porters, servants, and as much of the trappings of home as they could bring. They had not earned the respect of the working party by simply turning up. But the Belgians were not concerned at their public perception. What they were most worried about was an Italian called Pierre Savignon de Brazza, who was acting as a French naval officer and busying himself on the northern bank. De Brazza was also King Leopold's overarching concern. There was a real chance that the French would claim the land of central Congo before he had the chance to. In November 1880, de Brazza started this process. He spent a month at the court of the Bateki King Makoko as a guest of his honour on the north side of the pool, at the end of which he had convinced the king to place his fingerprint on a French treaty. This allowed the raising of the French flag, but also established Brazzaville, named after himself no less, as the site of the French colony. This would become, much later on, the capital of the Republic of the Congo. Once again, not the Democratic Republic of the Congo, our podcast subject. This arrangement gets to the heart of the matter of this episode. 
its characteristics would be mimicked by Stanley as he made his way up the Congo River to the Kisangani station at the Boyomo Falls. His task was to set up trading stations, read imperial outposts, along the course of the river. It is highly probable that King Makoko would not have had an understanding of the far-reaching consequences of applying his thumbprint to de Braza's treaty. Peace arrangements were made between tribes, and we have seen the growth of the Commonwealth kingdoms, but even then the land was not given up, let alone the people. There was a system of tributes, and the collective support of manpower in times of conflict, but the land belonged to the ancestors. It was not to be given by the living. It could be conquered, but not sold. I suspect that the chiefs signing thought that they were setting up a trade deal, rather than giving away their ancestral homelands. And Gabliema, chief of the Kintamamo, ruled the land south of the river, and it was next to host de Braza. Despite the panic of Leopold II and the Belgians, however, Stanley was not worried. He had become the Gamliema's blood brother at the end of his cross-continental expedition. Leopold II was so flustered that he urged the expedition to head beyond Stanley Pool, to set up stations beyond even Bioma Falls and Kisangani. He wanted them to travel all the way to Inyangwe, or New Bengal, deep in Arab territory. Stanley just laughed at this nonsensical direction. He knew the distance this covered, and it just revealed Leopold's ignorance of the country. His diaries recount disappointment as his orders evolved to start collecting ivory, resultant of direct competition with the French, who were buying as much as they could. But despite these changes in orders, the mission continued. After a brief return to Europe to recover from serious illness, Stanley returned once more to negotiate with Ngamliyama. Things did not turn out the way he wanted, despite renewing their friendship. Ngamliyama had been warned by the coast of Bakongo not to allow a mission to be set up. This warning wasn't based on history, as we may imagine looking back at this today. It was a little bit more commercial. If the treaty was signed, traders would be able to cut them out of the ivory trade as, with a base in San Salvador and Soyo, they were able to act as a broker between Malabi Pool at the centre and the coast. It's interesting to note that, 135 years ago, there was no voice of concern for the elephant population. The chiefs on the river were shrewd business people who wanted to protect their market. They were not signing this away, but, unfortunately for them, this was to no avail as Stanley learned that Ngemliama had no legitimate claim on the coastal strip that he coveted. He discovered that a rival who had been ejected from the tribe after an altercation had legitimate control. This rival was lavished with goods until he literally sounded the drums that showed he had reached a treaty with Stanley, and indirectly with King Leopold II. Ngemliama was furious. He rallied nearby chiefs into war to protect his trade, taking up arms himself but he was to succumb to a trick. In line with Tipu Tip's feint, pretending to know the individuals after the Shinsis War, Stanley had instructed his men to hide. They were ready to spring into action when they heard a gong struck. Apparently, seeing the gong, Ngamliyama was so curious enough to want to hear the sound, and against Stanley's advice, he struck the metal hard. The people strang from bushes and huts, fully armed and with enough energy to shock the chief sufficiently to order his men to stand down. I am a little sceptical about this account, to be honest. It sounds a little suspicious, and altogether too similar to some of Tipu Tip's accounts with the Eastern peoples. I suspect that guns were used in force, but this would not have been so popular with the Victorian editors and the audience of the day.
this small conflict in a very localised area was as the fabled flap of a butterfly's wing causing a hurricane somewhere else in the world. The consequences were enormous. The road was finally completed and Leopold, through Stanley, now had his station at Malaby Pool. He even had two river steamers, the Royale and the Onivant, on the navigable inland stretch of the river. The Congo River Basin was opened up for travel. There was a road connecting it to the Atlantic coast and steamships to navigate the river. But Leopold, showing his abundance of ignorance and arrogance, was still impatient for more. Stanley was simply not pressing ahead with Leopold's plans with enough vigour. He continued to form treaties with the natives in his own way, much to Leopold's chagrin. In August 1883, Stanley wrote to Leopold telling him, No Belgian officer or anyone else was entitled to treat the Congolese as though they were conquered subjects. This is all wrong. They are not the subjects. It is we who are simply tenants. But Leopold did not care. Still paranoid about the French, he brought in new treaty makers who were more like-minded, now that the road had been opened. With the help of Belgian agents like Van Kirkhoven and Dalcommune, as well as the British Army Major Francis Vetch, over 450 treaties were signed. Much to Leopold's delight, each chief now flew the flag of the Congo Free State, as the territory was now called. This flag was dark blue in colour, with one gold star in the middle, and it was raised throughout the Congo River Basin. Leopold's hold was growing. The flag itself has an interesting story. Casting doubt over Stanley's ignorance as to the underlying mission, he took with him to Congo a stack of these flags. He wasn't able to bring the stars and stripes, as he had done when he had met Livingstone, nor was he able to bring the Belgian flag, as this was a personal mission of the Belgian king. But what he did have were a stack of the original Burnett Lone Star of Texas flags, which were now obsolete and free to use. These second-hand flags of 19th century Texas were planted throughout the River Congo Basin in those few years in the 1880s. In Western eyes, this meant that the territory was claimed, although whether the chiefs would have agreed is subject to debate. This flag became the flag of the Congo Free State, and it came to be the symbol of persecution and exploitation. But oddly, and crassly, it was handed down as the flag of the Belgian Congo, which we will come to later. This flag then went on in the 20th century to be the basis for the flag of the next Brussels-based international organisation. Yes, that is actually true. The first Lone Star of Texas flag became, through evolution, the inspiration for the flag of the European Union. The Burnett flag is basically the EU flag, but with one large star in the middle. Fun with flags indeed. Beat that, Sheldon Cooper. Whilst these internal territories were being tenuously claimed by Leopold, other powers started to question his legitimacy. Not of his right to claim the land, of course, but whether this land should actually be theirs instead. Portugal, although now much reduced from its 15th and 16th century global empire, was still embedded in the region, and continued to claim its territory in Angola to the south. It also jealously guarded its coastal enclave 60 kilometres to the north of the mouth of the River Congo, Cabinda. France, too, was becoming increasingly vocal as to its claim around the River Congo mouth, with a louder voice probably compensating somewhat for the defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. Alarmingly, these territorial claims were starting to overlap. There was a very real risk of military escalation. 
Leopold could see his ambitions at risk of being swept aside in a conflict between the powers of Europe. If push came to shove, there was little he could actually do. He was able to cajole and trick the chiefs, but not other European powers. Things got very serious when the superpower of the day, Britain, became increasingly alarmed by de Brazza's attempts to claim the land for the French. They formally started to support their oldest ally's territorial claims, Portugal. This wasn't just rhetoric. All the major powers sent military vessels to the Congo River mouth. While Stanley and Leopold's other emissaries claimed land up the river, Leopold was forced to dance his diplomatic game. Firstly, the French were appeased when Leopold concessioned first right of refusal should his expedition fail, as they thought it would. Secondly, and more importantly, he was starting to reap the rewards of his propaganda campaign in the United States. One of Leopold's most valuable lobbyists was the former US ambassador to Belgium, General Henry Shelton Stanford, who Stanley had met years before in Marseille. Sanford was extremely wealthy in his own right, owning large plantations in Florida, but he saw a lucrative opportunity to work with Leopold. When he was asked to be Leopold's personal emissary to the US, he accepted. Stanford was able to woo the then US president, Chester Arthur, through extravagant trips to his Florida mansion, sitting luxuriously amidst orange groves. Here the president heard exaggerated tales of developed settlements with support offered by a steamship navy of seven vessels on the Congo River. There were in fact only two at this time. The Senate, including the American Baptist minister George Washington Williams, of whom we shall hear much more later, were hugely supportive of the tales of Leopold's developmental philanthropy. One imagines that they could infer a direct parallel between these and the development in the American West. Leopold had successfully created a narrative where the Association Internationale de Congo was an ally of the United States and another force for good in the world. The US establishment fell for it hook, line and sinker. On April the 22nd, 1884, the US Secretary of State gave this address. The government of the United States announces its sympathy with and approval of the humane and benevolent purposes of the International Association of the Congo. Administering as it does the interest of the free state there established and will order the officers of the United States, both on land and sea, to recognise the flag of the International African Association as the flag of a friendly government. King Leopold now had two powerful allies. The French, who thought he would fail, meaning they could take the land, and the United States, who thought he would be an ally and allow the US free commerce. At the Congo River Basin, the Senate resolution was accompanied by a 21-gun salute by a US cruiser just off the coastal port town of Banana. This was a firm show of support. It was also in clear earshot of the French, British and Dutch cruisers who were all posted there in case things got out of hand. The Congo had become the focus of the superpowers of the day. It would not be the first time that it would find itself here, as we shall see in the 20th century. But Britain was not happy, particularly at the prospect of a French addition to their African possessions. A standoff between a Portuguese cruiser and a French cruiser revealed the tensions. Portugal was not allowing the AIC access to the coast via the river mouth, and hemmed in by the French to the north, who wanted the plan to fail, Leopold's free state looked precarious. In light of these tensions and to embolden his own prestige in Africa, 
the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck invited the European powers and the US to Berlin in November 1884. The conference was to last three months and became known as the now infamous Berlin 1885 Conference. This was the conference in which the European powers agreed how to partition Africa amicably. There were no Africans there. We have just seen how, for the last few hundred years, their power had been washed away to such an extent that they were at best allies to a power. Simply, they were voiceless on this international stage. This was a world away from the 16th century, when the Kingdom of the Congo had emissaries around the known world. The Africans' fate was not their own to decide. The vast majority of the peoples living there would probably not have known that this conference had even been called. For the Europeans, the main purpose of this conference was to avoid war. The Europeans did not want to wage war with each other, knowing the disastrous effect that this would have. In this way, the Congo was the catalyst for the formal Great Scramble for Africa. The recently opened lands, as far as they were concerned, represented such a temptation that serious discussions needed to be held. Stanley was only there as a celebrity. He had no power. But I suppose he had at least been to Africa. Opposed as he was to any land grab, he had started to witness the clashes between the Congo Free State and the Arabs of the East and he pushed for a resolution giving European states formal powers. Without European legitimacy, he started to believe the whole Congo Basin would descend into anarchy, with exploitation from Arab expansion in the east. Fundamentally, he now saw the creation of a European-controlled state of the Congo as the best future for the region. He was in line with the times. The 1885 Berlin Conference Agreement reached the following conclusions. 1. There was an international agreement to stop slavery by African and Islamic powers. 2. The properties occupied by Leopold's AIC were to be retained by Leopold. 3. All signatory powers would have free trade in the Congo Basin. 4. Power required effective occupation to claim land. This essentially meant flags and treaties with local rulers as well as an effective police force. And finally, a broad, and I mean broad, definition of regions in which different European powers had legal ownership of the land. Without upsetting any of the major powers, and cloaked in the veneer of civilizational fervour, unthreatening Leopold was granted the Congo River Basin and a route to the coast. He finally got his slice of the magnificent African cake, as he called it. Diplomacy could now take a back seat, and he could turn his attention to grabbing as much land as he could, unchecked by the other great powers who were his greatest threat. He could now spread the land grab further inland, and friction would mount with the more established power towards the east, the Arabs. How this resolved, we shall see next time. As you can guess, it was war, but only after a bizarre situation where Tipu Tip agreed to work for Leopold for a period of time. Oh, and lest we forget... Siri remains untouched, ensconced in his Katangan kingdom with all of his minds. These we shall all visit on our next meeting. So until then, safe travels and see you next time. <laughs>